You're listening to episode 65 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara. He's Alex. We're a couple of weeks into the spring, one Cardinals starter down, and yes, we're still talking about the Astros. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast that claims to be about the Cardinals, but mostly talks about all the other drama in baseball because, quite frankly, it's been way more interesting over the course of the winter. It's Tara and Alex again, and there is once again plenty to talk about that will actually include the Cardinals this time, Alex. I know last week we talked about how that first week of spring training doesn't really mean anything, but it has been nice to start to see some more videos, some more pictures, guys on the field doing real baseball things. Yeah, I, I love watching men play catch. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> uh, it does lead to us to, you know, the opportunity to really heavily critique and analyze six or seven seconds batting practice swing mm -hmm. footage as well. So, you know, really hardcore, in-depth, mm -hmm. meaningful analysis in the first couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, you're riffing on the Tyler O'Neill thing that went around last week, right? Yeah, yeah. Tyler O'Neill, Matt Carpenter, Harrison Bader, anyone who steps in the box and, and <laughs> takes a swing at this point. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, you know this, but that, that seemed way over the top in terms of people freaking out because they didn't think Tyler O'Neill's swing looked right. And I say this as someone who has never been a big uh, fan of Tyler O'Neill's game, but that doesn't seem like something we need to worry about too much in February. No, especially batting practice swings, right? I mean, yeah. like they're not necessarily... we. And the thing about spring training that always gets me is that you never know what somebody's working on. I think Derek Gould posted a, a clip of Matt Carpenter and specified he's been working over and over again on hitting to left field. So the swing might look a little funky, and it might not be the prettiest swing you've ever seen, but it's specifically because they're not worried about how pretty the swing looks. They're worried about accomplishing a specific goal. And that's the thing that's weird about spring training and trying to get too worked up one way or the other about the the video or the pictures that you see, even in spring training games, right? They're still working on stuff. And the same goes for pitchers as well. So it's always funny to see what kind of sets the internet on fire during the spring. Yeah. And if we know anything about Tyler O'Neill, his swing is fine, right? It's it's whether or not the swing connects right. with the ball. <laughs> yeah, it might be more pitch recognition um, than, uh, than the swing itself. Mm -hmm. But plenty of time this spring to work that out. Though I will say there hasn't been a ton of time to light Twitter on fire with actual baseball news because, I mean, like on field stuff, because there's been plenty of bigger picture drama to talk about with a couple of different press conferences this week, none of when, none of which went well. And more on the Houston scandal, looks like there will be a decision on the Red Sox portion of whatever it was that they were involved in by the end of the week as well. We will talk more about that because Alex and I were having this conversation earlier today. And once again, I feel like we have maybe a little bit of a different perspective on how some of this is broken apart this week, which will be interesting to dive into. But first, the news we've all been waiting for. We did, in fact, and I say we like I had anything to do with it. Brendan Schaefer did, in fact, find out whether or not Ozzy Smith could dunk. 
Yeah, yeah, good for Brendan. He tweeted on Monday, yesterday, uh, two days ago when you'll be listening to this. Here you go, Alex Carr, 79, and friends. Ozzie Smith could indeed at one point in his life dunk a basketball. Hashtag journalism. Way to go, Brendan. Uh, He also talked about it a little bit on his new daily podcast that everyone uh, should listen to. Uh, I I listen to it. It's it's very good. I and I I come here with a recommendation that you should too. Um, I wanted to reach out to Brendan to see if he could add just a little more info uh, (laughs) because I, I wanted to see if if Ozzy gave a more definitive answer in terms of how maybe where it fell on the actual uh, poll question, which was the poll question, the original poll question was, could Ozzy Smith dunk a basketball? And it was, yes, but just barely. Yes, of course he can dunk a basketball. In fact, he could dunk very easily or no, he could not. And if I recall, the no's bottomed out at 11.7%. So... Over 88% of Twitter felt that Ozzie Smith could dunk a basketball. And Ozzie came in and confirmed, apparently, that he could. Um, Brendan also added in a, in a DM that uh, Ozzie's had not anymore with his knees and stuff, but I did tell him he was making a lot of Cardinals fans happy by answering this question. Now, <laughs> He's probably like, why is anyone talking about this? <laughs> well, here's what I love about this. Not anymore with my knees. So he's implying it's not because he's 65, but (laughs) it's only because he has bad knees that he can no longer, uh, no longer dunk. And if if his knees were, I feel like it's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. um, I mean, I was one who was kind of uh, rising to defense of people last week saying Ozzy Smith couldn't dunk, so I'd be I'd sound silly if I said he could absolutely dunk as a 65 year old. <laughs> uh, but I do consider this issue put to rest. Ozzy Smith said apparently that he could dunk, and we should believe him. However, if you wanted to be annoying about this, this is what I think you would say: <laughs> it's that people exaggerate their, especially men. Men exaggerate their sports accomplishments all the time. And there's nothing more, I think, macho or more like something all guys wanted to do than dunk a basketball. Men have been lying about being able to dunk a basketball uh, since the beginning of time. You know, (laughs) men have been saying, I can dunk a basketball when in reality they can just barely graze the bottom of the rim. Uh, So, you know, if, if you wanted to still be annoying and say, well, until I see video proof, uh, I'm not going to believe it. That is what you would hang your hat on. However, again, I consider the issue put to rest. If you can't trust Ozzy Smith, who can you trust? There's our answer. Ozzy Smith could dunk. Of course he can. He could do a backflip. He could fly in the air while turning a double play. Why would anyone ask such a ridiculous question? I don't know, but I did. And it sounds like we have an answer. What do you think? I think that it would be absolutely crazy to question the first person source, but at the same time, I I keep going at one point in his life. So like, did he dunk a basketball one time? So that's what I want to know <laughs> if, if he could just, if he could go up and do a reverse dunk, um, you know, with ease, or if it was one of those things where he had to take a running start, jump off his left foot and just barely, you know, slam down the ball. And, you know, there was that small window where, where he could do it. And then, 
maybe he only did it a couple of times. I don't know. One thing I've always wondered about people who can dunk, especially like NBA players, uh, and I guess this would kind of be true for people like uh, Simone Biles, who we brought up last week, is there has to be a moment where you go up for a dunk or you go up for whatever uh, Simone Biles does, where you don't quite, I guess, to use a gymnastics phrase, stick the landing like you used to. Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. And you know that's not coming back. Like, it's not going to improve, and you know, unless you know, some performance-enhancing drugs are involved. But let's say that's not the case. Um, because, you know, th- once it starts to fade, it doesn't it only continues to fade. And that must be a very, I don't know, just a crushing thing to know like, oh, yeah. I'm on my way down the hill now, you know? Yeah, that sounds pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I've come to the conclusion lately, more than ever, that getting old seems like the worst <laughs> in so many ways. And um, getting old as a professional athlete is probably even worse than that because you are used to being able to do things that most people can't do and all of a sudden you also can't do them or you can't do them as easily so I imagine anyone competitive and determined enough to be a professional athlete would be super frustrated by that yeah and we've seen uh time and again that professional athletes don't always handle retirement well uh because they're you know ultra competitive people and uh perhaps going back to similar to what I said earlier is they often then have inflated versions of themselves and think they can still do things that they can't do anymore or can do things that they were never able to do. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Tough life for the retired professional athlete. Fortunately for Ozzy Smith, I think he seems to be doing pretty well for himself. He's, he's doing and very well. Yeah, he's doing very well. Looks to be enjoying his time, you know, playing catch and <laughs> whatever it is that he's doing so far this spring. It's always good to see him around. Always good to see the other legends hanging around. I know we've seen a bit, heard a bit from Chris Carpenter this week, who also I actually was just listening to an interview he did where he was talking about that competitiveness and how for a long time he tried to find something to replace it with in his life. And he finally had to just come to the conclusion that there is no replacement. You don't get to just fill that void with something else you can be as competitive with. And you just kind of have to like relearn how to do most of your life in a non-competitive way, as opposed to doing most of your life in some form of competition, which, yeah, I can't imagine how difficult and, and how frustrating that process must be but he also seems to be doing all right for himself it's nice to see him around a bit more if he wants to stick around and you know i don't know try to pitch (laughs) there seems to be an opening in the rotation at this point we'll get to that in a minute but before we circle back to the cardinals we want to kind of sandwich in the next sequence of the houston astros drama because it seems like Alex, once it came out, once the punishments were handed out, there was this immediate explosion. And now all of a sudden that players are reporting to spring training. They're doing media sessions seemingly every day. The Astros gave that horrific press conference that just made people more frustrated. Manfred did a press conference that did the same thing. All of a sudden there are players all over the place. And in many cases, players who don't normally talk about other players just absolutely losing their minds over this whole situation and the fact that the players weren't punished and the fact that, um, you know, the commissioner came out and and basically said, 
we're going to stop anyone from retaliating, which we can have that conversation as we go along here. Probably a good idea, but nonetheless, I think players are voicing frustration, Jack Flaherty being one of them, but also the likes of Mike Trout and Aaron Judge and like guys who typically aren't in the news for things they said about other players. Nick Markakis, of course, Cody Bellinger firing back at Carlos Correa, Carlos Correa firing back at Cody Bellinger, all of the stuff about Jose Altuve and whether or not he has a collarbone tattoo. Turns out he does. It's his daughter's name. Don't know why that was a thing he didn't want to reveal. But anyway, there's so much drama, Alex. And it's not at this point, it's not just fans. It's players getting involved in this drama. And because this is so complicated and so layered, we talked about this and maybe for your sanity listening to this we're gonna i have it i'm pulling it up right now we're gonna set a timer (laughs) we're gonna talk about this till the timer goes off we're giving ourselves 15 minutes to talk about the astros and then we will move back into cardinals land because believe it or not this is actually a cardinals podcast when it can be so i'm gonna start the timer alex and feel free to dive in wherever you want to start with the astros mess of the last week all right we have 15 minutes 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, so I, I, have a, now. I have a couple questions, and these are questions I, I personally don't have answers to. First question, what would a good – and I'm talking about the Astros here, not Manfred, but what would a good press conference have looked like? Because I don't know if it even exists right now from yeah. the Astros' standpoint. They're not going to just say, we are so sorry we did this. We feel horrible. Um, we would not have won the World Series, you know, had we not been doing this. So we basically cheated our way to a title. We know they're not going to say that, right? That, I mean, that would be yeah. crazy. They're not going to say that. So what would a good press conference had looked like in terms of satisfying the masses? I don't think it, I don't think it was, would have even been possible. I don't think a good press conference where you admit that you cheated exists. I do think that what they did was like the worst possible option to, for example, for Jim Crane to sit there and say, I don't really think it impacted the game at all. Well, that's just nonsense. And everyone knows that it's nonsense. That kind of leads into my second question. So I don't want to. So if you can hold your thought, I really want to get to this. Okay. Would it change your perception of anything we know now if the Astros still win 105 games next year? As in, like, they're just as good without cheating? Yeah. Um, yes and no, because I think comparing season to season is really difficult anyway. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so the personnel is different. The, the players you're competing against are different. So I guess to some extent, I mean, if you see absolutely no change in their success rate from a season where it was confirmed that they were cheating and how they were cheating to a season where they didn't. uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that then there's a conversation to be had about how much something like that really does make a difference. But I think at this point, it's pretty well acknowledged and received that it does in fact make a difference. I mean, for Mike Trout to basically come out and say, (laughs) yeah, if I knew what pitches were coming every time, man, that'd be a lot of fun. I think it's pretty universally accepted that it at least mentally changes the game and the dynamic of the game for the hitter in comparison to that one-on-one competition with the pitcher. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think it, it would, I think it would restart the conversation, but I don't think it's a, an apples to apples comparison. Okay. And, and I agree with that. 
But there is a follow-up, which is that say they only win 84, 85 games next year, then that certainly matters, right? Uh, I mean, I, I assume people could say like, oh, well, they're welting under the pressure of just like, you know, being booed everywhere they go and this is just too much and no team would have been able to overcome this. But I think more people would say, like, no, they're, um, this is what they are without the cheating. Um, and I bring that up because if, if we're going to take that, if, if, we're, if we would take that route, and I think I would, or at least I, I would consider it a huge factor. I don't know if I would totally go there, but I would certainly be interested in going there. Then I think we have to, I don't know if we have to, but we have to take into account something if they still win like 105 games next year and you're totally right like comparing season to season that's a really good point it's not always the easiest thing to do but i do think you have to take into account a little bit that if they still win 105 games next year it goes back to what i've been saying from the beginning which is we will never truly know how much this actually helps them now that said the underlying thing here is if you know what pitch is coming, then of course that's going to help you, uh, like Mike Trout said and like other people said. I just don't think it's as easy as it sounds all the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it means you're going to bat a thousand, right? Like you still have to, you still have to hit it. You still have to hit it not at somebody. You still have to, you know, make it safely to second base on a double or whatever it is. So there are still a lot of moving parts. There's still a lot of variables. And I think as far as if they win 84 games this year, I would tend to say the same thing. Like it's still hard to compare season to season Mm -hmm. because of, you know, perhaps the competition that they were facing or, you know, there's so many things that you can't quantify, right? Because now the competition is going to be trying to prove that they're not as good, right? So maybe you're getting the very best of everybody that you're playing and you are dealing with a, a different pressure than ever before. So there are so many, so many variables that could create that, that aren't just specifically were they stealing signs and banging on trash cans or not. So I I think either way it breaks down, it's difficult, if not impossible, to know how much of it is a a direct correlation to the cheating and the sign stealing and the trash can banging in and of itself, which is why it's hard to maybe come to any sort of concrete conclusion about how much it impacted 2017 or how much it was impacting 2018 in whatever version it morphed into. And there are still players saying they're convinced they were doing something in 2019 as well, at least to begin with. So yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to figure out exactly how to measure that, which is why this conversation is so messy and it's so complicated. And to some degree, why the commissioner's office was in such a lose-lose position. And I have no problem acknowledging that. I think he's made a disaster of it in the last few days, but I don't think there was a way for them to come out of this looking great because on the one hand, they're going to deal with a bunch of really angry players if the the players who cheated aren't disciplined. But on the other side, they're going to deal with a players association who's going to file a grievance for every player who is suspended or whatever it is. And then they're going to, it's going to be a mess there too. So there, there was really no way to win as far as the players were concerned. I don't think if you're, if you end up dealing with players on an individual basis, but I think back to the initial question, as far as the press conference for the Astros, they made it worse by 
by saying things like, we're really sorry about the situation (laughs) instead of we're really sorry that we broke the rules. (laughs) Like, There were people who at various times said, yes, we broke the rules. Yes, we shouldn't have done that. But every apology was kind of this like, we're sorry about the mess. And that doesn't come across as particularly sincere. I think the Carlos Correa situation is really interesting to me because in his comments immediately following that press conference, where I think Houston PR was like, hey, th- we need more than that because people are real mad online. Um, and all the players kind of stood around it. Maybe not all the players, but a number of the key players stood around and, and talked to the media after that. I thought what Carlos Correa had to say was really sincere and really genuine. And then I think he kind of erased a lot of that with his follow-up comments the next day and and how aggressively he went after Cody Bellinger and some of the things he said about... And I get it. You get defensive, right? But I think... Where I land on that whole press conference, on the whole like PR nightmare for the Astros, is that at some point, these guys have to realize they're going to have to wear this. I mean, they all made individual decisions to participate or to not participate in something that they have all acknowledged they knew they probably shouldn't do. So at some point, they just have to wear it and know that people are going to be mad and know that people are going to say things and they're going to question their integrity. They're going to question their character. They're going to question the results on the field. Like That's the mess they made for themselves. And rather than trying to talk their way out of it, I feel like they need to just realize they're going to have to wear it and it's going to be a mess and it's not going to be fun and it is what it is. And I think some level of self-awareness of that would have been far more palatable than this weird sort of like, I'm going to apologize, but then I'm going to get defensive when you don't like my apology. And that's sort of the reaction most people had to the press conference. Well, Everyone keeps saying, like, you know, they're not sorry they did it. They're sorry they got caught. Uh, well, why would they be sorry that they did it? Um, I, I, of course they're not sorry that they did it. Uh, if they were sorry that they did it, at some point over the course of a 162-game season, something would have kicked in where they would have said, whoa, we have to stop this. You know, this is but not... But I think that's what people want. I think p- people want... For, for anyone to feel like... There's no chance that... They, that's, but that ship sailed a long time ago. But, but here's the thing. I, I think for anyone to feel like the apologies they're offering are actually sincere, you would have to feel like they actually think what they did was wrong and they shouldn't have done it. And they feel bad that they did it, not they feel bad that it created a mess. And you're probably right. You can't go back and do that in reverse, but it doesn't feel particularly sincere for them to apologize to the fans for something that it kind of seems like they're not really that sad that they did. Well, so just stop talking, just stop talking and play. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with that. I'll also say like, I don't feel as though they owe me an apology. I don't really, I mean, my feelings were not hurt. Uh, I mean, I've, I've almost found the whole thing kind of amusing. I know other people do not find it amusing at all, and I totally get that. In that and I'm not trying to downplay this as not a big deal because it's a huge deal. Uh, I do think that, yeah, they maybe owe their own fans um, an apology just because now their own fans are in this position of, you know, they, they're fans. They, they're fans. They can't do anything. They're not going to all of a sudden just like, well, I guess I'll just root for the Rangers now, or, you know, I'm just going to take a few years off of baseball. That's, that's just not how this stuff works. So, And I think it's hard on 
young fans, I mean, in addition to people who've been fans their whole lives, I mean, in anything like this, right, we we set people up on a pedestal and we have expectations of them and, and you feel like you are along for the ride in whatever it is. And it feels a little cheapened when something like this happens, but it also just like is impossible to explain to young fans of the game. Like, I, I don't think any of this is good for young fans to see as much as we like to talk about <laughs> baseball needs to reach out to young fans. So for Houston why, why fans, that, I think it, why is it hard to, ex- to explain to young fans though, other than just saying like, yeah, they cheated. I and, think and, what's and, hard and is to like, not see like consequences. Because if you're, if I'm a young fan and I'm watching these, these players that I idolize that I want to be someday. And then all of a sudden they turn out to be, kind of slimy and mm-hmm. they did stuff that would like turned baseball into this national nightmare <laughs> to some degree. Like, first of all, that's going to hurt as a young fan who maybe can't separate what is important in like real life and what's important in sports life. But also I don't think it, I don't think a lot of people are going to look at this couple of weeks of baseball and the, the shadow it's going to cast as a good thing in baseball because players are lashing out at each other and teams are lashing out at each other and no one really knows what the truth is. And Manfred looks like a clown. And like, so I just think it's, it's, it's unfortunate for fans young and old of that team to watch the people that they've invested in be kind of now the, the people who have cast this shadow over baseball. Okay. So, a couple of things. I certainly don't expect little kids to understand the intricacies of like a front office and all that stuff. But the idea that there's no consequences to me is um, just a farce. I, I mean, the, the Lunau is <laughs> is gone and he'll never be back. Uh, that could be the same for Hinch as well. Uh, and so the team... And, and that's not even going to mention that. That's not even going to mention the scarlet letter that they're all the players are going to have to wear yeah, pretty but much over this. The but, team's well, not going to look any different. If you're a, a kid watching the team, like the team's what? not going to look any different in 2020 than it did in 2017. Me- meaning, in terms of like a, a player wasn't kicked out for the season, or or what do we mean? Yeah, and I don't different? even know what the well, the right. I'm doing air quotes with the right. Uh, individual player punishment would have been but i think i just think it's weird to to have players lashing out at each other but for there to not be anything that actually changes on the field i mean i I don't know i just think it's hard to justify those two things and i understand why people are frustrated by that even if i don't have a better solution I would never pretend I know what another uh, baseball player is feeling, especially a rival baseball player is feeling. But I do wonder how much of this is a little bit of just like posturing. Like, listen, uh, before this, a lot of people did not like the Astros. They resented them for that Sports Illustrated cover that they got years ago, which said they were going to win the World Series in 2017, even though they were garbage at that time. Uh, Lunau has always rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, obviously people had suspicions, um, if not more than that, about the Astros doing these sort of things for years. So I think now a lot of people are getting their payback that they've wanted to get 
for a while now because they don't like the Astros for a myriad of reasons. Um, but I'll also say that. Oh, come on. Add, f- add five minutes. Add five minutes. You can add. We can add five minutes. I knew minutes, that wasn't right? going to be enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah keep yeah, going. Yeah, let's add five minutes to that. All right. If people couldn't hear, the buzzer just went off. Apparently, that was 15 minutes already. Um, I don't want to say other teams were also doing this because we, all, we obviously don't know. Um, and I, I listened to you and Daniel talk about this. And even though I'm not positive I agree with it, I do think he made a decent point. Daniel made a decent point when he said if this was more prevalent in the league, then we wouldn't be seeing all these visceral reactions from other players. Uh, and, and I think there's uh, some validity to that. That said, I do feel like baseball has been inching toward this scandal for a couple of years now, and it was almost just a matter of time. And so maybe that's why I'm not getting the shock the conscious vibe that other people seem to be getting from this. That you know, with so with just the the fact that you know the, all the video cameras and everything going on, and and how important signs are to the game, like I. I'm maybe I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. Uh, and, and maybe I, maybe I just don't understand the, just the, how big of a line this is that the Astros crossed. Uh, but I, even though I'm not saying other teams are doing exactly what they were doing, um, because I, you know, that's a crazy thing to say until we actually have proof of that. I also don't necessarily feel like the Astros are absolutely operating on some Island unto themselves. Whereas every other team was just simply relying on hoping to have a guy on second and maybe seeing what the catcher was relaying back to the pitcher. 29 teams are doing that and the Astros are, are having, you know, crazy technology and know exactly, you know, if it's an off-speed pitch or a fastball. I, I, it's hard for me to, to reconcile that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think the fact that in previous years there were – reprimands and consequences for the Yankees and the Red Sox for different usage of technology kind of reiterates that, that people were trying to figure out an advantage based on the additional technology that they had access to. And that's not particularly absurd to consider and to think that other teams were considering, if not using some of that technology for a a similarly um, covert advantage, I guess. But I think that, I don't know, I guess, I think based on the reactions that we're seeing from players, I I don't think that it's just because people already didn't like the Astros. <laughs> I think that it's, I think it's proving to me how significant players feel like this was and whether it's because you're a a bubble roster guy who lost his job and hasn't had a job since then because he got blown up by the Astros or if you're you know Mike Trout and you're the best player in the game who feels somehow robbed of the legitimacy of a game against the Astros because they were they were taking an unfair advantage where you weren't. I mean, I just feel like it's, it's one thing to say a lot of teams are probably doing stuff that blur the lines. It's another thing for players from all of these teams to basically say that's like, everyone knows that's across the line. So I guess that's for me where it it becomes more, uh, it becomes more than just something that everybody's doing to, oh, 
like this is actually a big deal, not just to me as a fan who can sit, you know, subjectively on my couch and judge everyone, but for other players who have been in other dugouts, who have been on other teams, who have played with other guys, who train with them in the offseason, who whatever it is, to still call them out and say, like, this is such a problem that I'm going to break my silence and name names to talk about it. That, to me, is significant. And I don't think, I I guess because... I guess maybe my perspective of, well, I'm not a player, so here's how I have to take that is that I don't, I can't understand the significance of it in the same way that a player would. So I'm not going to, you know, suggest that they should all just get off their high horse and (laughs) recognize that everyone's blurring lines. Well, take your average baseball player and tell him, hey, I have a great opportunity for you. I'm going to stick a microphone in your face and you can act as much as a tough guy as you want and everyone's going to be on your side. You can- but these aren't guys who are usually tough guys. No, no, Mike and, Trout and, doesn't talk like that. that, that Aaron Judge doesn't talk like that. that that's true. That's, no, that, that, that's probably true. Um, but these aren't guys who are typically looking for the opportunity to speak is what I'm saying. But are we not allowed to question Aaron Judge's motives a little bit uh, on a team who lost to the Astros? Uh, he lost a uh, MVP trophy to uh, Altuve. Um, like, what, ad- what advantage does he gain, though, by that? What, what, what ad- good does it do him to now say, yeah, I think it's bad that they cheated? What good does it do him? I don't know if it does him any good or bad uh, at all. I, I'm just saying I, I, I'm still just not ready to go to the spot that the Astros were so rogue that no one else was even in the same ballpark as them. But maybe maybe that is the case. I don't know. But is it – I mean – if the Yankees were not in that same place, if the Dodgers were not in that same place, like not every player from every team has spoken up. I, right. I think it's that's yeah. So maybe there were a handful of other teams that were doing, I mean, you would like to think that if there were other teams that were going to those lengths, they wouldn't be the worst teams in baseball. But nonetheless, I, I just, I guess to me, it's, it's, unusual enough for some of these players for many players in baseball to be this outspoken about something and i don't know what good it does them if it's somehow for their own strange pr (laughs) so that's why i i feel a little more in favor of these reactions are genuine than perhaps that they're not and they're just for the show yeah i i just don't like the idea of allowing the players to set the tone um, just because even though they're because I, I, I mean, I just don't think that they're always looking at it through the best lens, um, which I know that's crazy because they're the actual players and they're the ones competing against them. But because of that, they're going to be skewed a little bit. And, you know, I don't want to say something insulting about, about these guys, but I just, you know, of, of all the major sports, uh, you always hear about the baseball locker room just being the most like boorish and uh, uh, whatever, you know, 
what's the word I'm looking primitive <laughs> of all the of all the spaces that occupy professional sports. And so maybe that's just my own uh, bias and uh, bringing into this that I just uh, need to get over. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm curious if you all listening um, <laughs> want to weigh in, feel free. I guess I get to a point where to some degree, I feel like it's their world. <laughs> not mine. And if it's that significant to them in their own world, in their own space, I, I'm not going to tell them they shouldn't be reacting. But I also understand that at some point, it becomes reacting for the sake of the reaction. And some of that's media driven, right? Everyone's asking them these questions. In many cases, they're not spouting this off on their own. They're being asked a question about it. Um and at some point, the story is going to have to be about actual baseball because we're all just going to get so tired of hearing this that no one's going to want to talk about it anymore or read about it anymore. So at some point, that will happen. And, you know, perhaps it'll be when <laughs> Cody Bellinger and Carlos Correa stop <laughs> launching grenades at each other from uh, from across the country. <laughs> Last point I'll make and... Uh, uh, take this however you want it. Um, but in uh, 1994, I cheered for Tanya Harding at Lilyhammer to win the uh, gold medal. Um, this explains so, a lot. <laughs> that's this say. explains <laughs> a lot. That's all I'm going to say on that. <laughs> um, I've learned something very important about Alex tonight, everyone. <laughs> Um, and now we're going to talk about Miles Michaelis because I have no, there's, I have nowhere to go with that. <laughs> um, okay. That was a so, wild time. 94 Olympics. Yeah. Um I'm a little I'm a little mind blown right now, but uh okay. Maybe Kerrigan right. was a, was kind of an I no, you know we don't need to get we don't need to get to it. <laughs> I let me just let me just put it this way to to connect this. Um what I was just saying about it's it's their world and and I'm not going to tell them how to react to it. Having worked in the figure skating world, you're very much not on the on on the figure skaters side of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm positive yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I'm actually um. positive. <laughs> and but believe me, I think when I learned once I learned, I was only 15, but once I learned more, sure. I was like, all yeah. right, maybe uh, um, maybe I don't really have to cheer for anyone. And if I and if I do cheer for someone, maybe it should be Kerrigan, the one who was physically assaulted. Oh, uh, uh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, well, from, from and, one injury and to the other. People Go forget on. this. The original plan was murder. <laughs> Which is insane. I just, I'm sorry. We, and you still were rooting I, for Nancy Kerrigan? I didn't, I didn't learn that until I don't think after the fact. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> just, just want to be clear. And I don't know if, it, if that was ever quite proven, but I think it was. At least one of those idiot hangers on that you know carried yeah. out this horrible deed uh, i think mm -hmm. suggested that at one point yeah uh, so i don't know how serious that was um but it was brought up as what maybe we could just do this uh so yeah so I, it's I, a good I, thing they didn't do that <laughs> yeah i might <laughs> just... not be telling many more people that i was cheering for <laughs> tanya um you know hey to each their own <laughs> Um, all right. So now that we've, we've, uh, <laughs> jumped into the figure skating world and it wasn't 
my doing <laughs> for once. Let's jump back to baseball. Let's jump back to something perhaps a little less controversial and talk about Miles Michaelis, who at this point will likely not be ready for opening day after getting a second platelet-rich plasma injection. Is that right? Did I say that right? Uh, something about that sounded strange. PRP? Uh, yeah, that, that, that sounds right. He got, he <laughs> um, got something. <laughs> he, something injected not, because his arm's not, sore. Yeah. Uh, they say he doesn't need surgery. Weird yeah, yeah. Names and Basically, that. his arm's falling off, and yeah. this is the end of his career as we know it. Um, hopefully not. But at this point, it will likely delay his start to the season, which means there is an additional opening in the rotation. Alex, how does this change your opinion about the potential rotation for the Cardinals, at least starting the season without? Miles Michaelis in it, who by all accounts was really supposed to be probably the two or three in that rotation. So that's exactly what I was going to say, which is, okay, now look at the rotation and tell me who the number two guy is, uh, because <laughs> it's not very easy. And look, Miles Michaelis was very good in 2018, and he was solid in 2019. He wasn't great, but he was solid. Uh, over the last two seasons, he's thrown the fifth most innings in the National League, um, and he's the other people on that list are the who's who of the best pitchers in, in the NL, like Scherzer and those guys. Um, so it's, you know, what, what are they looking at? At best, he's going to be back in late April, so miss at least the first month of the season. Uh, yeah. It's not great. <laughs> you know, it, 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 one of those things where it bumps everyone down. Now the Cardinals do have kind of this plethora of, I guess what you would call quadruple-A pitchers. Um, you, you know, Gant, Helsley, uh, Cabrera, although, you know, Cabrera could be more than that, and so could Helsley. And, um, you know, Ponce, you know, also Ponce and Leon Gomber, I think we had thrown in the mix. Um, but right now we're looking at what? Flaherty, Hudson, Wainwright, Carlos Martinez, and uh, Kwang Hyun Kim, uh, or, or KK. I don't, I don't, I'm still not sure about KK. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to mispronounce his name, but yeah, KK. Um, so we have a lot of unknowns and it's, it's one of those things. Do you ever feel like whenever you go into a season thinking the starting pitching is going to be good, it's not. And then when you Mm, think it's going to be a huge question mark, it's actually pretty good like last year. Uh, So it's always one of those things that's never easy to, to guess. Uh, But obviously no one, would want this news. Uh, it's the reason why starting pitching is so valuable. And it's also, if there's ever a lesson to learn in all of this, it's never, ever, ever in February. And I make the mistake every year when you have, I guess, six guys and you know, there's only me five spots. Never assume that that just won't work itself naturally, work itself out naturally because it, <laughs> it always, always does. does. Right? It always does. Yeah. And it's always, I mean, I feel like there's a significant injury to someone slotted for the rotation every year, right? And so we always have this conversation. We come into the spring and we're thinking, all right, it's probably these five guys or at least five of these six, maybe seven guys. And we know who four of them are. (laughs) Um, And in this case, KK was kind of brought in as the insurance policy, right? If Carlos Martinez was not able to get back to starting rotation condition or whatever i'm still not entirely clear on what the messaging is around carlos martinez and his return to the rotation but it seems like at this point that's sort of gone by the wayside and people are talking about him as if he will be in that starting rotation especially now and kk becomes 
not just the insurance policy, but the, the, the primary, well, maybe the insurance policy just, uh, put into play a little bit more, um, a little bit earlier than, than they had hoped. But I think, I still think that, look, Miles Michaelis at his best is a huge asset to this team and his experience, his consistency, that sort of thing is, is difficult to replace. But I do think perhaps more than I have in the last couple of years that the depth that the Cardinals have to work with are guys that can fill in those roles. I guess the, um, the caveat there is they can fill in those roles if they're pitching well, <laughs> which you could say about anyone. But I think in all of those cases, right, those guys that could fill in that spot, whether it's Ponce de Leon or whether it's uh, Ryan Helsley or Austin Gomber or any of the guys, you know, we, we keep listing all of these guys. And those are the ones that have some major league experience, not to mention the guys who are right there on the the brink of getting that that shot Woodford being one of those guys we talked about a lot about last year. There are a number of other triple a guys that could get their break this year. So there are guys to fill in those spots. I don't think that's the concern. I think it's the quality that you're going to get out of that spot. But I, I feel, I guess for me, I still feel like Carlos Martinez is the key to this rotation. If Carlos Martinez is in the rotation, they can absorb the loss of Miles Michaelis, at least for a little bit. If Carlos Martinez is not in the rotation, that means he's not pitching well enough to be in the rotation. Then all of a sudden, that depth starts to look a little less impressive because you don't have the high end of the possibility there. You kind of you kind of cap out a little earlier than what you would get from Carlos Martinez. Alex Reyes comes into play a little bit, but I don't really anticipate them pushing him as a starter based on the fact that we've seen nothing reliable out of him in a couple of seasons, whether it's health or other reasons. So I think there's there's so much potential in this rotation with Carlos Martinez in it that to handle the slow start to the season for Miles Michaelis is much more reasonable than it would be without Carlos Martinez in it, which is to say... Michaelis is important, but I think Martinez is more important. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I would also say I think this injury highlights um, the Cardinals' depth, but it's the kind of depth where they could totally afford to lose their fourth or, I guess, fifth starter um, because it seems like they have a lot of guys on the peripheral who could be a, a, a fifth starter in a rotation. But at least right now. And again, I, I, I agree with what you said. Carl, who knows? Maybe Carlos Martinez can step up and, and be like the Carlos Martinez from 2016 or, or something like that. But it doesn't feel like we have a lot of guys who can just immediately fill in 190 innings that, you know, I think we are counting on Miles Michaelis giving us. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the key. And I think the the secondary point there is, is he really going to be back in April or is he going to be back at the all-star break or is this something that's going to continue to linger? It sounds like this was something that bothered him much of last season, which in when I hear that it suddenly isn't surprising to me that he struggled with consistency sometimes, right? When you've got an arm issue that no one knows about all of a sudden you reveal it after the fact and everybody goes, Oh, it all makes a lot more sense now. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how I felt about his 2019 season. So if this is something that's going to continue to be a problem, then you're not only are you looking at when do you get Michaelis back, but when do you get him back 
at 100% or at 95% or whatever it is that you can be without some more extensive procedure. So that all is yet to be determined. But I think the fact that it happened at this point in the in the spring, the fact that there are so many guys competing for potentially a spot in the rotation, there's still a lot of reason to feel okay about where the Cardinals are with their pitching staff. It just sort of changes the dynamic and maybe the depth a little bit, at least to start the season. But other than that, Alex, there hasn't been a ton out of spring so far. I know it's only been a couple of weeks. I haven't seen any games yet. We will this weekend. But there hasn't been a ton out of this spring other than just kind of like normal stuff, which is probably the best thing you can possibly say about the first two weeks of spring training. Right, right. Well, I think that's all I have to say about <laughs> baseball or figure skating. <laughs> um, so if uh, if you would so oblige us with the chirp of the week, let's uh, let's move on to that. Okay, let's let's do that, and ho- hopefully next week the Cardinals will give us something um, more to talk about that's not in- injury related, and yeah, and we don't have to talk about the Astros anymore. Uh, the Astros are the new Bryce Harper, I guess, because uh, uh, that's true. this time last year is all we were talking about. Um, but Bryce Harper was way more fun. It was, yeah, 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 <laughs> it was. But I don't know. I, I apparently I'm like the only person uh, who sort of enjoy- not enjoys. It's not. It's not good. It's terrible for baseball. I recognize that. Um, all right, let's move on to over the week. Uh, I'm, I'm taking us back to September 7th, 1993. If you're a very good Cardinals historian, you might know immediately that's the evening when Mark Witten hit four home runs and uh, drove in 12 uh, on a Saturday night in Cincinnati against the Reds. Uh, this was huge at the time because in 1993, uh, even though the Cardinals were having their best season between their playoff uh, appearances in 87 and 96, around this time, the Cardinals just weren't that exciting. Uh, they never made national news. E- you know, you know, they still had Ozzie Smith. Um, Ozzie was no longer the type of guy who really drove baseball narratives like, say, Barry Bonds or Ken Griffey Jr. or Frank Thomas. Like, like those were the superstars of the game at that point. Um, and so it was rare for something like this to happen where the Cardinals would kind of like transcend all of baseball and be like the talk of baseball, even if it was just for an evening or for a weekend. But that's what happened when he did this because it was such an outrageous game. I repeat, hard hitting Mark Witten. Um, and I've made this mistake before. Even though there's two T's in hard hitting, there's only one T in Witten. Uh, so I've made that spelling mistake before, in case <laughs> anyone else has. That's W-H-I-T-E-N. Um, but yeah, he hit four home runs and had 12 RBIs in, uh, in a game against the Reds on a Saturday night back in 1993. And I wanted to look at baseball uh, references play index and to look at Cardinals who had a look at players who had a career with the Cardinals and didn't exceed either of those uh, numbers uh, in their career <laughs> with the Cardinals. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, I, I started with 1947. Uh, you may have heard me say before that's when I like to start because that's at least when the league first made an attempt um, at integrating, and I, I feel like going back before. Before that, it's just not um, not always great for stats, and you know, I, I, I want to always try and start at least at some semblance of the modern era. So, uh, so again, going back to 1947 with the play with the play index, I first looked at Cardinals 
guys who played for the Cardinals who did not exceed either 12 home runs, excuse me, either four home runs or 12 RBIs. And I sorted it by plate appearances. So who had the most plate appearances with the Cardinals, but in those plate appearances did not hit more than four home runs or drive in more than 12 RBIs. And the answer for this one is Harry Walker. Now, this is kind of cheating because he, he was with the Cardinals from 47 to 55. But he was also with the Cardinals in the early 40s um, before he went to, I think he did a stint in World War II, and then he went elsewhere and came back. Um, but we're not counting those earlier years because, again, the starting point is 1947 to 55. Um, well, I'm, excuse me, the, the starting point is 1947. But from 47 to 55, Harry Walker, who was a center fielder, had 239 plate appearances with the Cardinals, and he hit zero home runs and only had 10 RBIs um, during that span. Um, Other Cardinals who made this list, um, who you might recognize, would be Mike Gallego, who uh, played in 96-97, and also Mark Ellis. Remember when Mark Ellis was stealing playing time from Colton Long a couple years ago? Yeah. Well, during that time, he did not exceed either uh, four home runs or 12 RBIs. Uh, shocker (laughs) now when looking at players uh because you know a lot of people can't hit home runs but you're still going to drive in runs um so i i I looked at it also for just players with four home runs guys who didn't exceed four home runs with the cardinals um but but i feel like pete cosma has to be on that i'm glad you said that that's excellent (laughs) you said that but but i'm removing rbis from the equation here um so Number one at the top of the list is actually Eddie Casco, who was an infielder with the Cardinals from 1957 to 58. 802 plate appearances, only three home runs. Uh, other players on this list, though, would be Pete Cosma, um, Kerry Robinson, you might re- remember him, and Tim okay. Jones. Tim Jones was the guy who would fill in for Ozzie Smith at shortstop every once in a while. It was always a bummer if uh, you know my family would drive an hour and a half, two hours to a Cardinals game. And Ozzy was having his day off and we had to watch Tim Jones oh, instead. The yeah. worst. Yeah, that was never good. Uh, but yeah, I can't believe Cosma didn't hit more than... Actually, I what am I talking about? I very much can believe Pete Cosma did not <laughs> hit more than four home runs uh, in his career with Cardinals. He actually hit three. Um, but then I also wanted to look at all of Major League Baseball. Um, so forget the Cardinals and let's just look at all players uh, going back to 1947. So again, we'll first start with uh, all players um, who didn't who neither uh, exceeded four home runs or 12 RBIs. Sorting by plate appearances. Number one, and he's a recent player, James Jones uh, for the 2014 and 2015 Seattle Mariners. Uh, Hmm. For his career, and it was just with the Mariners, 359 plate appearances, zero home runs, nine RBIs. So there you go. And the very last one is uh, for all of Major League players going back to 1947 who didn't exceed four home runs uh, for their career and sorting by plate appearances. Um, And this goes to uh, a player. He was a shortstop named Frank Tavares. He played from 71 to 82, 4,399 plate appearances and only two home runs. Um, oh. But again, we're, we're removing uh, RBIs from the equation this time and just looking at the home runs. He only hit two home runs and all those plate appearances. He did steal 300 bases, though. He was, uh, he was right. prolific on all the right. base paths. Um, and uh, according to Wikipedia, one of his home runs was an inside-the-park Grand Slam in 1977. Uh, 
Now, uh, I think he gets bonus points for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I like Wikipedia, and I usually trust Wikipedia, but I also want to, uh, you know, cross-reference that with something, but just to make sure that is indeed the case. And so I went to Saber, uh, and I found Tr- Frank Tavares's Saber page, and they did confirm that in 1977 he did hit a an inside the park grand slam as one of his two career home runs. Um, <laughs> but there's a little more to the story, uh, I guess. Uh, oh, it, for one, it was off Al Herbosky, which is which is pretty yeah. great. And you have to think <laughs> awesome. uh, okay. Herbosky was getting pretty angry on the mound as this happened. Um, but also, uh, he won a friendly bet with Willie Stargell, his teammate at the time, with the Pirates, who bet that he would never um, hit a home run. Um, and he did. And Stargell, of course, was never um, banking on the fact that it might be an inside the park uh, home run, let alone a grand slam, which it was. Um, awesome. <laughs> but I'm going to read just a little bit more about it because it's pretty amazing. Um, on August 5th, 1977, Tavares finally got his first round tripper in a big league regular season game. He'd hit six in the minors. Um, it was an inside the park grand slam off Doug Capilla of the Reds at Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium. It came after Tavares was at the center of a bench-clearing brawl in the opener of that night's doubleheader. Veteran, okay. Yeah, veteran Cincinnati reliever Joe Horner plunked Tavares in the ninth inning because he thought that the shortstop had been rubbing it in by stealing a base in the third inning. In the third inning when the Pirates what? were already up 7-0. In the third inning. Uh, oh, boy. Tavares retaliated by throwing his bat and in the ensuing melee, Horner punched Tavares in the face while Reds catcher Bill Plummer was holding his arms. <laughs> Which is, that's insane. One, it was only the, th- I don't care if you're up seven to nothing. That's only the third inning. Yeah. So even yeah, if, that's fair. so sure, you can look at like Fangraph's win probability and say like, yeah, the Reds probably aren't coming back and this game is probably over, but it's only the third inning and you have fans in the stands. You owe it to them to, play the game and have, you know, play the game like they paid to see, which is stealing bases if you want to and stuff like that. And also just the idea of hitting someone in the face while your teammate is holding their arms. Uh, that <laughs> is crazy to me. And that happened to uh, Frank Tavares um, wow. uh, back in 1977. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the whole point of this uh, trip of the week was, again, hard-hitting Mark Witten. And his four home runs and 12 RBIs back in September of 1993. I remember it well. It was a, it was a very uh, – I, I wasn't watching the game, but I, it was a very cool thing to wake up to and read about. Um, so there you go. You would think that would never be topped, and I can't imagine that it will. But I do believe because, you know, Mark Witten had uh, 16 total bases in that game. I believe that was a record. And still is a record, but Matt Carpenter tied it a couple of years ago in that game against the Cubs when he hit three home runs yeah. and, and two doubles. Yeah. Uh, so I never. I was at that game. Yeah, you were at that game. I was at that. Oh game. my goodness. Okay, and that's when they benched him too, right? He could have, uh, you know, he could have taken one more, one more at bat, and who knows? Yes, um, had like yeah. the greatest game in the history of I baseball. Know. But I was hoping it, that he would hit one more. But yeah, well, yeah, that was wild. What can you do? Anyway. That's your chirp of the week. Hard hitting Mark Witten. Good for you. Uh, you, you provided Sorry about that's probably the most entertaining thing to happen for the Cardinals between <laughs> 87 and mm. 96. That's true. That really, that's really might unfortunately be. Unfortunately, yeah, true. Yes, yes, <laughs> might be. Well, he has that to hang his hat on, <laughs> as well as records, which are probably cooler, but nonetheless, that 
is a trip of the week that involved Pete Cosma. So and and Mark Ellis, and yeah. Mark Ellis the nemesis of the one and only Colton Wong. So you just really just really hitting all the high points there of the Cardinals in the last decade or so. But thank you for that trip of the week. Thank you for another excellent conversation. Everyone that is listening, feel free, like I said, to chime in on the Astros, on your thoughts on the Cardinals starting rotation, who should fill in those last couple of spots if Carlos Martinez is going to be the guy, and if not, who else do you think it'll be? And, of course, continue the Ozzie Smith can dunk discussion as much as you possibly want because that might be the best thing that happened (laughs) in this entire podcast so thanks again to alex thanks to all of you for listening make sure that you're following birds on the black on social media on twitter on the website on whatever podcast service you listen to you can find us on all of them just search birds on the black podcast which you've already done if you're hearing us right now so just tell your friends and they can find us then and join us next time when we talk about houston and st louis and tanya harding (laughs) maybe something else will come up in the next week as we start games and see sort of pretend baseball happening on the field in florida we will talk to you next week and talk all about it so until then i'm tara he's alex we'll talk to you next